0: You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something.
1: This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kutz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on
2: the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I welcome film critics A.O. Scott and Michael Phillips
1: to talk about movies, music, and the Oscars. Plus, we'll review the new albums from Johnny Cash and Gil Scott Heron, and then I'll pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to welcome our newest affiliate. Yes, Greg, whenever a station adds sound opinions to its airwaves, we like to say hello and play a little bit of music from their part of the world. And man, oh man, is it hard to narrow it down for Nashville, Music City, one of the music capitals of this fine country. I am so excited that Sound Opinions has been added to WPLN Nashville Public Radio. No kidding, right? We were talking about this for like 20, 25 minutes. Because yeah. where do you start? Tough choice. I mean, one of the greatest music cities in the United States, you know, a center of the industry as well. And Nashville means different things to so many different people. I mean, do you go with the current Nashville superstars or do you go with the classic Carter family or Hank Williams or, or Hank the Third? We decided we wanted to pay tribute to Nashville with two artists, one current who has just moved to Nashville from Detroit and one of the superstars of the last half century from Nashville Dolly Parton I think is often overlooked for the depth of her songwriting because the personality is so much larger than life you know she's a superstar right but the songs are there and a new generation is discovering that and doing their own unique interpretations of those songs I'm thinking of course of the White Stripes cover of Jolene you know it's got a female protagonist in the original Jack White doesn't flip the gender role, and finds a reading there that I, I don't know if Dolly likes it or not, I don't know if Nashville likes it or not. We love it, and we think it's it's two generations of Nashville in one. So welcome, WPLN Nashville Public Radio. Here is the White Stripes, Jolene on Sound Opinions.
3: Your beauty.
1: That's the White Stripes covering Dolly Parton's Jolene on Sound Opinions, and we welcome WPLN Nashville Public Radio.
4: And he
3: says in a little while you'll be all right. All he gives is a humbug pill, a dose of dope and a great big bill. Tell me, how can a poor man stand such times in me?
2: That is How Can a Poor Man Stand Such Times and Live, Bruce Springsteen's version of the blind Alfred Reed Depression-era song. Ticketmaster was trying to make a lot of Springsteen fans a whole lot poorer last year when they were overcharging them for concert tickets. At 14 Springsteen shows last year, when you signed on to Ticketmaster, a lot of fans were redirected to Tickets Now, a secondary ticketing service, and asked to pay quite a bit more for Springsteen concert tickets. Well, now the Federal Trade Commission has been involved in investigating this controversy for the last year, and they have concluded that thousands of Springsteen fans were ripped off and are owed over a million dollars in damages so that Ticketmaster and Tickets Now were taken to task for redirecting Springsteen fans to much more expensive tickets than they normally would have paid for.
1: Tickets Now being Ticketmaster's in-house scalping.
2: Exactly. And this controversy came right before the hearings for the Ticketmaster Live Nation merger last year in Congress and was seen as a major blow to the prospects of this merger. Well, of course, as we have reported in recent weeks, Jim, Live Nation and Ticketmaster have indeed merged. But this ruling, I think, indicates some of the possible damage that this merger could cause. The fact that there was some collusion and the FTC concluding that there were some deceptive practices here that can no longer be tolerated. In other words, uh, Tickets Now was selling phantom tickets. They were selling tickets to consumers for exorbitant prices that they didn't actually have. And then when they weren't able to deliver on those tickets, the refunds didn't quite match up with what the fans were paying. Representative Bill Paschal of New Jersey commented on this recent FTC decision by saying the FTC did exactly what the U.S. Department of Justice failed to do in its approval of the Ticketmaster Live Nation merger, put the rights of American consumers first.
5: Everyone's got to-
1: sound opinions Hollywood's biggest night the Oscars is coming up next week but for the first time the award show's producers have decided not to include the best song performances as part of the broadcast Now Greg and I always have music on the brain but we wanted to turn to our critical colleagues in the film world to get their take on music in the movies. A.O. Scott of the New York Times, better known as Tony, to his friends, and Michael Phillips, the film critic at the Chicago Tribune, are, of course, also the co-hosts of TV's At The Movies. Tony, Michael, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Now, before we get into this, I just got to say one thing here. Now, if you guys want to follow in this Siskel Ebert de DeReggadas tradition. <laughs> one of you got to gain a little weight, okay? I, well, just I, I mean to keep things, you know, uh, r- right.
4: I, I've been I've been working on it. I want to be the fat one. <laughs> <laughs> Damn
1: it, Tony Scott putting in his pitch for the being the fat one. Um, I think the it's the final yes. yeah. tradition. <laughs> show, yeah, <laughs> you know, Abbott, Costello, Siskel, Ebert, DeReggadas Scott. Now, no, you no. Know. Among
2: many reasons that we are having you on the show, gentlemen, is that the Academy Awards are imminent, and uh, of course there are lots of movies and actors and actresses being nominated.
1: We don't care about that. We're about <laughs> do music. Do you care? But
2: do you care about stuff like best song and uh, best film score? I absolutely
6: do. I, I think film music is is one of the X factors in why we love the movies. It's the secret ingredient along with, you know, there's, there's certain elements of movie making that work on you subliminally more than rationally. I think, you know, what an editor does for a living, what a cinematographer can do. And what a composer can do to kind of bring out something in a scene, an emotion, a, a song, all the rest of it, we don't often even recognize while it's working on us, why it is working on us, or why it isn't working on us. And you know, this year, especially in Best Original Score, there's a composer I, I that I've just loved for years. I think he's the best guy working in a contemporary film right now, Michael Giacchino, who's done a lot for Disney Pixar, and he's nominated this year for Up. And that's a film that absolutely would not be the film it is without Giacomo score
1: Michael you uh, you mentioned up which is up for best original score along with Fantastic Mr Fox which would be my choice Sherlock Holmes Avatar and The Hurt Locker what do you listen for in a good score?
6: I'm I'm very <sighs> I tend to be resistant to the direct attack on my emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for future reference, guys, do not do not directly <laughs> attack my emotions.
4: Yeah, I do it every, I try to do it every week. Um, so I, I, my, my goal is to, is to,
1: yeah. is to make well, you a burst into I think, tears I think Tony, on the air. I
4: think Tony's thing is he
6: somehow manages to get into my brain.
1: I, I know, think one of my but, favorite but, reviews of yours ever, Michael, was when you admitted that you were moved to tears while watching Up and the, the sequence of the uh, couple falling in love. I
6: would not have admitted it if uh, the guy uh, next to me at the the Cannes Film Festival, watching it, who was crying too? I uh, hadn't uh, tweeted it within ten seconds. That you know, I was blubbering, <laughs> blubbering, blubbering. <laughs> no, I honestly, I use, I typically don't cry unless something falls on me. Uh is <laughs> a guy who it sounds like insane hyperbole, but he's a guy, you know, like the great operatic composer, like like Puccini, like uh, a lot of the golden age Hollywood composers, Bernard Herrmann, Alex North, who just can hit you, you know, right between the eyes and where any number of hacks would try something similar and just try to, you know, grab every one of your heartstrings and yeah. yank at the same time. And uh, Alexandre de who did well, I was uh, say, yeah, Fantastic yeah, Mr. Fox, yeah. almost in his league, I think.
4: Yeah, no, I think de is one of the most interesting and eclectic, you know, um, his scores tend not to resemble each other. And, and I, I think in Fantastic Mr. Fox, I mean, Wes Anderson is always a director who uses music in very interesting um, and very pointed ways to sometimes to play against or to counterpoint as well as to enhance the, the emotions of what's happening on screen. And I think that, especially in Fantastic Mr. Fox, where he's using this stop-motion animated form where there's not a lot of expressivity that's coming off of the characters. It's all coming from the surroundings and from the sound. I think that that score is kind of playful and a little bit haunting and, and just does a lot to tie together that movie.
6: What he has is what I think a lot of the really first-rate composers working in all kinds of mediums have. He doesn't have the primary impulse to reprise a theme right. or refrain over and over and over, so you get it. That's what you get with Hans Zimmer, who, in mm. my view, is a second mm. rater. Some scores better than others, and not an untalented man. But, but I
4: was reaching into the bag and pulling out some of the same horrible. The same and stuff. it's also
6: I even mean, I hated Sherlock Holmes. So the, <laughs> Hans Zimmer plus Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> tough night at the movies for me. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I love The Hurt Locker as a film, but I can't remember for life of me now what the soundtrack. But I think in, in
6: in that film, it's that is probably correct. You don't really want to notice music in a film that is trying very hard to kind of keep a lot of the old dramatic
4: yeah. machinery out of the picture. Well, I think that's also an example of an approach to scoring where the music becomes an element of the of the overall sound design Ambiance and becomes almost yeah, yeah. And what Catherine Bigelow is is doing in that movie so often is orchestrating these very tense set pieces. It's really like almost just sort of seven of these sequences that the movie's built around where where a bomb is being diffused and where you're just led up to this almost unbearable um, pitch of suspense. Mm. Is, you know, is, is everything going to blow up? Who's going to get killed? And the music does thread in and kind of help that build up.
2: We also need to talk about Avatar. James Horner, he's done all these movie soundtracks, Legends of the Fall, Titanic, A Beautiful Mind, gets a lot of work in Hollywood. Now he's done the best-selling movie of all time. What about the Avatar soundtrack, Tony? Does it work or doesn't it? Well, I,
4: I think it does. I mean, it's, it's almost the opposite or an interesting contrast to what we're talking about with The Hurt Locker, where you know, the score in that film is is buried in the sound design and doing subtle, imperceptible things to to what you're seeing and reacting to on screen, this is much more old-fashioned, like, mainstream, big Hollywood score. When you have the big battle sequence, you're going to hear the big, you know, sort of orchestral swell mm. up underneath it when the terrible sad thing happens and and the, you know the, the Navi are dispossessed and their tree is <laughs> destroyed you're going to hear the wailing you know wordless human ululating voices mm. i think one of the reasons that he's been so successful and so often nominated and so often hired is that he does do that mainstream down the middle big movie Big emotion, big effect, big score. Uh, big
6: forgettable, too, I think. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I wonder if I wouldn't have responded better to the second half of that picture, which I didn't like very much. I, I really went with that film for the first 90 minutes, but if a different composer had hit all that sort of genocidal anguish from a different <laughs> from a different angle in the second half, just to, to ease up on the audience. I, I don't know. It might have made about four percent less at the box office, but it might have been twenty percent less manipulative experience. I think yeah. you
4: can buy now off the, the different sample menus. Genocidal
1: anguish. Sure. <laughs> you, you, you notice, Greg, the, the tone <laughs> the with which our uh, colleagues Michael Phillips and Tony Scott talk about Avatar is very similar to like you and I talking about the U two tour. <laughs> 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 it, it was. Big. It's there big. were a lot it's of lights.
2: It's a big machine and it's going to roll over you whether you want to or not.
1: Let's wrap up the Oscars real quick. Uh, best original song. We got two Randy Newman tunes from Princess and the Frog, which I'm, I'm not sorry to say I didn't see. We got a song by somebody I never heard of from Paris 36. We got something from Nine, and we got uh, that, that incredible T-Bone Burnett-produced song that Jeff Bridges sings in, in Crazy Heart. Gee, let me guess which one you'd vote for. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you know, as far as a song being a great song, that's the only one that would get me excited is the Crazy Heart. Song. Yeah, that's the best song.
4: I mean, that's a song that you could imagine, you know, just hearing on your car radio and, and liking
3: your heart's on the loose. You rode them sevens with nothing to lose. And this ain't no place for the weird kind.
4: There's a reason that you haven't heard of Paris '36, which is that it's just a, a terrible movie. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> but it's sort of it, it's set in this kind of bogus music hall world of of 1930s Paris it's a french song in yeah. french um and it's it's bogus in a way that's that's similar to the bogusness of of nine which is trying mm-hmm. to evoke like italy in the in the in the mid 60s and um is is one of these screen adaptations of a i think kind of inexplicably popular stage musical and the problem with it is that the music is just bad i mean is there is there a good song in that whole? In nine, I actually
6: there's one song I really like. It's one of the ones he wrote for the screen version, yeah. uh, the runway number. What is it? Oh uh, um, God, just the one Kate Hudson.
4: The cinema. Te- that's the worst one. No, no,
6: <laughs> no. It's it's brainless, but I sort of like it. Cinema.
2: Michael, what about uh, Randy Newman? He's got two nominations this year for Best Original Song. You know,
6: five seconds after the print was dry on The Princess and the Frog, they were singing those Randy Newman songs down at the showboat, part of the Disneyland theme park yeah. in Anaheim. Yeah. And and so, I mean, there's mm, I think songs are written for some projects that that have
1: another eye toward another life and you know but the I, irony of this we have waxed rhapsodic about Randy Newman on this show any yeah. number of times but he is one of the most cynical black hearted uh, <laughs> you know and I mean those as compliments I mean you know what a dark songwriter and to think that he's always churning out this stuff for the kiddie films. well if you think
4: also that he's writing about I mean he one of his most brilliantly cynical songs is Louisiana 1927, 1927. Right, right. and he's revisiting the scene of that devastation to write these two very corny I mean every you know talk about cliches of old New Orleans
3: in a silent light.
2: Interesting, there's this dichotomy. He can't get arrested as a maker of pop albums, but when it comes to Hollywood soundtracks, he seems to be the go to guy.
1: We'll continue talking music and movies with A.O. Scott and Michael Phillips in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, Greg and I will review the new posthumous release from country legend Johnny Cash. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DiRagatis here with Greg Cott and our guests this week, Michael Phillips, film critic at the Chicago Tribune, and A.O. Scott, film critic at the New York Times. We are talking about music in the movies, and Michael, let me ask you about trends in movie soundtracks. I remember talking with uh, director Cameron Crowe about what he called the Batmanization prevalent in soundtracks about 15 years ago where, like, you know, the Warner Brothers recording artists were put in the Warner Brothers films and it was all this one big synergy. It made no sense whatsoever. It could be an irrelevant scene of the Joker running around and all of a sudden this bombastic song comes on and it's, you know, it seems like we're seeing less of that as far as I'm concerned. I I think the big trend lately has been the Junoization of all these (laughs) soundtracks where everybody wants to sound like infantile indie rock, you know. Five Hundred Days of Summer winds up doing it, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. But, but I want to know what you guys are thinking. What's going on in soundtracks, in indie film, and in major films?
6: Well, I, I think you've absolutely hit it. I mean, I mean, uh, but it, it depends on the director to keep a real eye and an ear on when it's right and when it isn't. They don't have any control over whether or not their finished product is the fifth film that year to kind of hit that same soundscape. But even in something like Up in the Air, uh, Jason Reitman's follow-up to Juno, yeah, you had a couple of very dubious uses of sensitive, folky stuff that basically is doing the, the, all the emoting for the audience. That's competing
4: with my experience with it. It's not amplifying it, and that's I think it's very quickly becoming a, a cliche. I mean, you see it even in a, in a very sort of you know mainstream commercial non-indie movie like Dear John sort of which is a, mm-hmm. the weepy with Channing Tatum and Amanda Seyfried that has these kind of like you know folky emo songs sort of stuck in there over the over the montages. One interesting development I think it's a little bit like what we're talking about with the, the Hurt Locker one of the most Striking and unusual approaches to scoring and soundtrack music in, in recent years was uh, was No Country for Old Men, in which there was mm. an inaudible mm. score, yeah. <laughs> virtually, composed by Carter Burwell.
2: So, so we're, we're we're trending away from this golden age epitomization of what a movie soundtrack is, you know, as defined by Ennio Morricone or, or uh, Nina Rota or uh, somebody like John Barry. And this music came back into rock in, in the mid-'90s. You saw this, this entire movement based on, wow, these guys were making some amazing... Music that was basically background for for what was happening on the screen with these big stars, but at the same time, music that held up on its own and that thirty, forty years later was amplified by new generations of, of musicians who wanted to emulate it. Well, Marconi
6: too. I mean, he'll never be forgotten as long as Quentin Tarantino is still making movies. Because if you <laughs> yeah. if you go to Inglorious yeah. yeah. Bastards, yeah. you're yeah. hearing you're hearing almost wall. Well, not wall to wall Marconi, but and in my view you're hearing a pretty stupid misuse of great film music but I don't question Tarantino's love and knowledge of Morricone as, as a you know he's great
4: I think it's also true that the kinds of collaborations between filmmakers and composers that, that you think about, you know, Hitchcock and Bernard H- Herrmann or Fellini and Nina Rota, has become more rare. An interesting exception to that might be Paul Thomas Anderson and John Bryan. John Bryan, yeah. Um, yeah. The way that music is used in those films, I'm thinking of Punch Drunk Love.
5: And all at once I knew, I knew it once, I knew he needed me.
4: It sometimes seems as if the film is being made, and this is is part of, I think, how they work, to follow or to accompany the soundtrack as much as the reverse.
5: Or maybe it's because
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we are talking music and movies with film critics Michael Phillips and A.O. Tony Scott. Let's talk about your favorite directors, guys. Michael, I, I know you're a Minneapolis rock guy. Worship at the altar of the replacements. You've you got this rock thing. and you, What are your favorite rock directors in terms of using rock and roll? Well, what about
6: certainly Jonathan Demi? I mean, when I saw Stop Making Sense for the first time, and I was almost brand new to the Talking Heads at that time. Mm -hmm. So that was a revelation every which way. I don't know, there's such joy in every frame in that.
2: What about you, Tony?
4: Well, I think um, Scorsese is one who has uh, he. he, I think he sometimes falls back on it a little bit. I thought, you know, in 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 the Departed, dragging at the Rolling Stones once again. Although I like the Rolling Stones, so somebody really needs
1: to buy that guy some new records.
4: Well, I I feel like yeah. (laughs) I mean, the Rolling Stones, you know, are are great. Yeah, but um, I think also uh, I like the way that uh, Robert Altman used and incorporated music and musical performance in in his film. I really enjoyed Prairie Home Companion a lot. Was kind of his farewell to movie making and but also captured a lot of how he felt about performance and got a lot of the sort of the backstage energy and how it crystallizes into these sometimes, you know, strange and goofy moments of musical art. Oh.
2: Baldwin's a great choice, I think, Tony, because he was a guy who was paying attention yeah. to what was happening. And, you know, the fact that he used, like, a Leonard Cohen, a bunch of Leonard Cohen yeah. songs to illustrate McCabe and Mrs. Miller, yeah. that was like, wow, who is this guy? You know, what's that voice? How does it fit in with this movie? And it was just a beautiful energy between those two things going on at the yeah. time. Yeah, that was, that was yeah. the first
6: time I had heard Leonard Cohen yeah. when yeah. I saw it, I a lot of people. And it's funny now. 40, <laughs> it's, it's funny what yeah. 40 years will do. You know, 40 yeah. years yeah. later, at the time, in 1971, the, the juxtaposition of this contemporary Canadian there, singer-songwriter and a Western mean. Frontier story seemed deliberately anachronistic you can mm. either buy or not now time 40 years have kind of mushed these things together and it all seems very much part of the same
4: mm. gestalt you know yes,
6: that's and, uh, true. and, and uh, it's and very I, moving I love and, that and,
4: and if I ever hear hallelujah in a, in a uh, movie again kill I'm, me uh, now <laughs> I'm walking out um, it was
1: such a great why, song why would somebody think you know, think, you know, you know Shrek we got this movie Shrek let's stick hallelujah in oh. there yeah. oh <laughs> yeah
6: you want to talk about a movie that oh. this whole idea of like oh isn't it fun to sample through our you know collective top 40 experience yee
3: remember when I moved in you and the whole head was moved
2: talking with Tony Scott of the New York Times and Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune, the co-hosts of At the Movies. Movies about rock and roll are movies that that's the center of the story. I mean, we've seen some really god-awful attempts of Hollywood trying to depict what it is to be a rock and roll band. What's, uh, what's or your
6: favorite uh, low-ender? Well,
2: you know what? Initially I, you know, I <laughs> think I, was a, big, born with Christopher I was a big fan of Gary Busey and the Buddy Holly story when I first saw it as a, as a teenager right. and now I realize that movie's a a load of bollocks you know <laughs> it's both uh, <laughs> yeah, Bamba and the Buddy Holly stories <laughs> you know they, they
1: sanitize these movies. artists that were, were great and electric yeah. and exciting and make them so safe well yeah. I,
4: I think the biopic is often the wrong yeah. way to mm-hmm. go I think maybe the tour movie, you know, whether it's, it's uh, Almost Famous or Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Oh, yeah, um, great movie. Really good movie, really strange, really, you know, pretty grungy look at life, almost making it on the road.
5: It's a tour of the whole country. We're going to California. We get a percentage of the profits. That's good. He's got a slot for us. In case you haven't heard, we've only had three rehearsals. Yeah, but they were real long ones.
1: What about Anvil? What do we think of Anvil? Oh, I
4: love Anvil, yeah. I I think Anvil is terrific. Um, I had a funny experience when I saw it at a critic screening, and another critic friend of mine, who I won't name, was convinced (laughs) that it was a hoax, Uh Um, who's not like, and and I had never heard of the band Anvil, I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to strut out with my great heavy metal credibility here, of which I have none, but I thought it was such a wonderful movie about falling in love with this kind of music when you're a kid, about being a suburban teenager who just, like, is smitten with the idea of making this music and, and sticking with it.
3: I love to entertain. It's part of it's, it's It's in my soul.
7: Nothing is like being in the face of your fans. There's a moment, and we are actual... Beautiful moments, that
2: human moments, where you're actually you're in the same room as the people that love you. Yeah! Oh, yeah. You know, it's hard to view a documentary now. I think in the light of uh, this is Spinal Tap a- anymore with any sort of, you know, that's why I think your reaction to Anvil was right. what it was. Absolutely. You're waiting for the punchline to drop.
4: And you know, they go to Stonehenge, you know yeah, they go to Stonehenge, yeah. they meet this producer who who has yeah. who has knobs that go to 11. Yeah, final like yeah. trap well, has come true. And then you've got a
2: movie like Metallica's some kind of monster. I was going to mention that which one. Which I think is perversely one of the most fascinating rock documentaries I've ever seen for all the reasons I didn't expect. I go this I cannot believe first of all. That they funded that and allowed that to actually see the light of day. Well, but it's like,
4: watch, it's like, who's yeah. afraid of Virginia Woolf but with a heavy metal band? I mean, it is, it's like, it's, it's, it's a marriage therapy. Movie.
2: It is unbelievable. I think it's f- stock.
5: What Which part of that is unclear to you? I think it sounds stock to my ears. I mean, you want me to write it down? I think oh, yeah. I feel it feel stock, I can't okay? Hear you. So I.
6: No, when you say, you're telling me what to play right now, you're telling me,
2: you should play with what Kirk's doing, and I'm telling you it's stock.
7: You know what, guys?
3: Why don't we just go in there and just hammer it out, all right, instead of hammering on each other?
2: Well, it's uh, two great advocates for movies, two great advocates uh, for music in movies. Tony Scott of the New York Times, Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune, together they co-host at the movies. Gentlemen, pleasure of having you on the show. Great, Pleasure was ours. A lot of fun. Thank you.
1: Greg and I want to hear your comments on music, movies, or anything else we talk about on Sound Opinions. Leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, and we'll put it on the air. You can also email, interact at soundopinions.org, or connect to us on Facebook and Twitter.
8: Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grief, where is thy victory? Oh, life, you are a shining path And hope springs eternal just over the rise When I see my
1: Redeemer
8: beckoning me
1: That voice, of course, is Johnny Cash asking, Oh Death, Where Is Thy Sting? on Sound Opinions. One of the uh, last tracks he ever wrote and recorded, it's called 1 Corinthians 1555, and it's from this new album, American Six Ain't No Grave, the sixth installment of the so-called American Recordings series that brought Cash together with producer Rick Rubin. An unlikely pairing, if ever there was one, this legendary, genre-defying giant, Johnny Cash, and producer Rick Rubin, 20 or 30 years his junior, the producer of artists such as Beastie Boys and Slayer and Run DMC. It really, for the most part, was a tremendous pairing and the perfect final act of one of the most storied careers in musical history in the United States. Reuben recorded Cash very simply, usually unfettered, not much adornment, some, sometimes some tasteful backing musicians added to that voice and that acoustic guitar. Reuben chose many of the songs. Some were Cash's originals over the course of these six albums. Others were famously Trent Reznor's Hurt or Nick Cave's The Mercy Seat, material that had a thematic connection to what Cash had always done, but new voices, and Johnny was invigorated as he recorded. American 5, what was, I thought, the final installment, A Hundred Highways was the subtitle, came out in 2006. Cash had died in September 2003, and Rubin said he wanted to wait until all the tributes and all the memorials kind of died down so that he could present some of Cash's final recordings. Now comes another set of final recordings. This Ain't No Grave collection. Mind you. As I said, there were five American Recordings albums, and there was a five-CD box set called Unearthed that had many tracks that weren't on the albums. There's a lot of Johnny Cash from this Reuben cash partnership, and now there's even more. Let's play a track from the album. We'll come back and we'll give our review. This is the title song, Ain't No Grave, by Claude Ely was the original songwriter. He was a gospel performer. This is Johnny Cash playing that song on Sound Opinions.
8: There ain't no grave I see a band of angels, and they're coming after me. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. Well, look down yonder, Gabriel. Put your feet on the land and see. But, Gabriel, don't you blow your trumpet till you hear from me. meet me, meet me in the middle of the air And if these wings don't fail me, I will meet you anywhere Ain't no grave can hold my body down There ain't no grave can hold my body down
2: Ain't No Grave by Johnny Cash, the title song from his uh, sixth studio album with Rick Rubin. Cash went out in a way that is somewhat disturbing to hear. You listen to these recordings, and they are a difficult listen. They remind me of Billie Holiday in the latter days of her career, that Lady in Satin record in particular, or Chet Baker, as he was going down slowly on record. you know, The voice just ravaged by the ears. And you yeah. can hear Cash audibly deteriorating on these recordings. And at the same time, there's a remarkable strength there. There's an, almost a psychedelic quality to this record, Jim, as far as I'm concerned. Some of these songs, are, they're like reveries, almost like done in a semi-conscious state, it seems, like blurring the lines between the earthly world that he's about to leave behind and whatever is over that next horizon and you can sort of see him looking ahead to that world he he clearly knew he was he was dying some of this music was recorded soon after his wife the love of his life June Carter Cash yeah. died in May of 2003 and Ca- he was fighting parkinsons yes cash himself was was to die in September of 2003 so he knew he had this small window of opportunity to work in and at the same time you can see him accepting his fate and, and looking ahead to the next world I think this is a very moving document for all the difficulty I have listening to it sometimes the psychedelic quality I hear about the sort of the mirage-like quality of some of these songs in that Cheryl Crow song Redemption Day of all things him muttering the words freedom, freedom, freedom over again freedom freedom And even the song, uh, that Cool Water song, which you know some people <laughs> may think of as a schmaltzy song, I think he redeems it. And again, it's a song that's talking about a mirage, about an illusion, about what is real and what is not real.
8: But with the dawn, I wake and yawn And carry on to water
2: Cool, clear I think it's a really powerful final document
1: from the uh, Johnny Cash-Rick Rubin collaboration, and I give it a buy-it. Well, we rate things here on the buy-it, burn-it, trash-it scale at Sound Opinions, and uh, Greg, I would say it's a burn-it. I think that there are three... Excellent moments here Uh, Tom Paxton's Wonder Where I'm Bound Chris Christofferson's For The Good Times And that Ed McCurdy Anti-war anthem Last night I had The Strangest Dream The rest of it Is painful Or embarrassing Cool Water You know Popularized by Frankie Lane It's just horrible And awkward And drags the record down And the closing a cover of that traditional Hawaiian ballad, Aloha A. You know, this is not worthy material of Johnny Cash, and I think this is the first time Reuben has stepped over the line from paying tribute to this artist he loved and admired to exploiting him. I don't see the reason oh, for this album. I don't album. think he's exploiting him I, at all. I think it's exploitative. I think a lot of this, Greg, should have been a private moment, or outtakes. You know, they're just not up to the par of the, and I will underscore, five albums and a five CD box set, ten discs worth of material all already from this collaboration, if the best moments on American 5, which was also a disappointing record, were combined with the best moments on American Recording 6, this new one, you would have had one decent album that still would have been painful, that could have been defended at least as, okay, this is for archival value. Johnny was recording as he was dying, and this is history, and now we have it. As it is, I I think this album is is unnecessary and painful, except for those couple of tracks, which I say burn. We're going to take a short break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio
2: and American Public Media. But when we return, we're going to review the new album from poet-musician Gil Scott Heron. And then it's Jim's turn to add a song to the Desert Island Jukebox. The first
8: time ever I saw your face I thought the sun rose In your eyes And the moon and the stars Were the gifts you gave To the dark And the endless sky My love And the first time Ever I kissed your mouth I felt the earth move
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is Gil Scott Heron with a song called Me and the Devil, a Robert Johnson cover that appears on his new album, I'm New Here. Gil Scott Heron, one of the great songwriters of the last several decades, a protest singer from the 70s, has not recorded much in the last 25 years. This, in fact, is only his second studio album in that time. But during the 70s, he really defined a unique sound. He bridged jazz, soul, protest music, poetry into a unique vision that anticipated artists like uh, Chuck D of Public Enemy or Michael Fronte of Spearhead. The entire hip-hop movement, really, can be found in those early records. People may know him from songs like The Revolution Will Not Be Televised the top 30 single johannesburg angel dust all of these songs were politically charged examinations of the culture we lived in steeped in jazz and soul and sung in that baritone voice of tremendous authority and power he's had a lot of trouble in recent years though been to jail a couple of times for uh, drug addiction primarily and you can hear some of the troubles that he's been having in his life reflected in the tone of his voice on this new record we're going to review it in a second, but let's play a track from it first. Where did the night go? From Gil Scott-Heron on Sound Opinions.
7: Long ago, the clock washed midnight away, bringing the dawn. Bringing the dawn. Bringing the dawn. Oh God, I must be dreaming. Time to get up again, and time to start up again. Pulling on my socks now. Where did the night go? Should have been asleep when I was sitting there drinking beer and trying to start another letter to you. Don't know how many times I didn't write again last night. Should have been asleep when I turned the stack of records over and over so I wouldn't be up by myself. Where did the night go? should go to sleep now and say because of a job and money because i spend it all on unlined paper and can't get past dear baby how are you brush my teeth and shave look outside sky is dark think it may rain Where 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 did you where did you
1: That is Gil Scott Heron with Where Did the Night Go from his new album, his first in 16 years, I'm New Here. Greg, we were just talking about Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash, and a lot of critics are saying that the head of XL Recordings, Scott Heron's label, Richard Russell, was trying for a similar Rick Rubin-Johnny Cash-like partnership with Gil Scott Heron, who he initially approached while Heron was uh, serving time in, in Rikers Island. I don't hear that. There's a lot of misguided overproduction on this record. That version of uh, the Robert Johnson song is like... ...as envisaged by Massive Attack. Other tracks are kind of pointlessly overdone... ...and it feels like Heron was like in a separate room... ...if not a separate state. You have a little bit of star power added... Uh, ...with the presence of Blur and Gorillaz leader Damon Albarn... ...although he really doesn't bring much to the proceedings. People are going to be thinking after the Cash review... ...and now this uh, Scott Heron review... ...that I'm just you know harsh on musical legends. There is no denying the accomplishments of Gil Scott Heron. He, he was one of the architects of hip-hop... But he's not doing what he had done best here. First of all, the voice is shot. You know, there's a lot of lazy slurring of words instead of that potent clarion call that typified his best work. But it's a very personal record. It opens and closes with a uh, reminiscence of being raised by his grandmother, and a lot of the other tracks are about, about his life and kind of philosophizing about where he is at this point, when his strength was always looking at the world around him and giving us those laser-like insights that nobody else had. When you think about the latest chapters in the lifelong novel of Gil Scott Heron that, that have come and gone, that he could have commented on, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, the election of President Obama, and in Instead, he's talking about he didn't sleep well last night. Wow, it's a huge disappointment, this record on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I have to say it's a trash it record.
2: You know, that may sound harsh. And I also hear what you're saying about the fact that he could have commented on these major events. But my sense of it is that Gil Scott Heron really wasn't present for any of those in a lot of ways. He was a man who was adrift. And in many ways, this album sounds like Gil Scott Heron was just sort of drifting through it and Richard Russell, you know, in a sort of heroic fashion, tried to patch something together from what was left of this guy. Um, It's really sad and difficult to listen to, whereas I got the sense with the Cash-Rubin collaborations that Johnny Cash was still very much present in what he was doing. I'm not sure how invested Gil Scott Heron was in this work. I've never heard him this vulnerable and fragile, and from that standpoint, this is a fascinating listen because in the past you did get this sense of a guy who did take care of himself and did understand the world and had powerful insights into it. And here he sounds to be deteriorating before our ears, and we have insight into why that is. But at the same time, it's about a 28-minute record. It feels very patchwork. There are few actual songs here, and Russell seems to be creating this cautionary mood piece out of these various fragments of Gil Scott Heron's life. But as a full album it really doesn't work. I was hoping, 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 Jim, that this would be a triumphant comeback for one of the artists that I love, but it is not. And at best I have to give it a burn it. I tell
7: you little buddy, this whole island is bewitched.
3: you
8: remember we were shipwrecked
3: together?
2: As often as possible on this show, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island jukebox and pop a quarter in it to find a song that we cannot live without. And this week, it is Jim
1: Dirigatis' turn. Thank you, Greg. Movies and music are on my mind. We were talking with A.O. Scott and uh, Michael Phillips. We were talking a little bit about Wes Anderson, whose fantastic Mr. Fox has been nominated for an Oscar for Best Soundtrack. I think Wes Anderson, along with Jonathan Demme, uses music in his films better than anybody else on the scene today. Mm -hmm. I'm not a film critic. I don't even play one on TV, okay? But I will say that the Royal Tenenbaums, Anderson's 2001 movie, may well be the best movie ever made. I certainly love it to pieces, and the music is a big part of it. There's a scene where Richie Tannenbaum, Luke Wilson, is returning after a year at sea on a freighter, self-imposed exile after he failed as a tennis star and uh, Margot Tannenbaum, who's played by Gwyneth Paltrow, it's his sister, but adopted, so they're not really related is supposed to pick him up and this wonderful Alec Baldwin narrative comes over and he had made a request for his usual escort, the one from his days on the circuit, to meet him at the pier by way of the green line bus. (laughs) As always she was late. And out of the mist comes Margot Tenenbaum Gwyneth Paltrow and you finally realize that her brother is in love with his adopted sister and it's this all scored to Nico's These Days an incredible tune that was written for her by Jackson Brown. Nico had been the singer of The Velvet Underground, placed there by Andy Warhol. They couldn't live with her for long. She only lasted three or four songs on that first album, and then she was gone, okay? But boy, she had something, because in addition to Jackson Brown writing for her, Tim Harden wrote tunes for her, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, and on her first solo album, 1967's Chelsea Girl, Tom Wilson, who had produced The Velvets, came to produce, and three of the four Velvets, Lou Reed and John Cale and Sterling Morrison, came to play on it. This woman was you know, mm-hmm. magnetic. Richard Goldstein said that she sang in perfect mellow ovals. She was the sound of a cello waking up in the morning. <laughs> I think it's one of the, my favorite lines of criticism ever. It's These Days by Nico from the Royal Tenenbaum soundtrack on Sound Opinions. I've
5: been out I don't do too much talking These days. These days. Says I seem to think a lot about the things that I forgot to do, and all the times I had a chance to. gambling these days, these days. These days I seem to think about how all the changes came about my way. And I wonder if I These days, and if I seem to be afraid to live the life that I have made it so, it's just that.
1: That is Nico with These Days on Sound Opinions. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to celebrate one of our favorite mediums. We're going to play our favorite songs about radio. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by the ace team of Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, kind of the Ari and Uzi Tenenbaum of the <laughs> Sound Opinions family. And, of course, our fearless leader, our executive producer, the royal Tenenbaum of the crew, Tori Southside Malatea. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say.
7: New messages.
0: Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Michael Reed in Atlanta, Georgia, and I caught your podcast on valentine's day about the songs to set the mood and i noticed that you're lamenting the lack of a revival for uh, romeo void and i want to let you know that there is a band out there that fits that to a t they're called operator please they've been around for about six seven years and they're out of uh, australia their front woman amanda wilkinson is amazing they've got pop they've got punk you Should check them out thanks
5: Money out of money out of here today, I got another 50 seconds and I'm ready to play. I say, money out of money out of here today, I got another 50 seconds and I'm ready to play. I got my, got my, got my, got my ragged and ham. Now i you a little bit, I don't think you understand. With a dirty, 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 dirty look in your face, I bet you don't be chuggy as an
8: Hey,
0: Jim and Greg, Steve calling from Salt Lake City. I listen to the podcast every week, even though my musical tastes are quite a bit different than yours. Because of our musical differences, sometimes I take a closer look at artists you don't like more than the ones that you do. This is the case with uh, Taylor Swift that you talked about. I was as surprised as anyone when she won the album Grammy, but when you guys dissed Fearless, I had to listen to her record. After several complete listens, I must say she has an authentic honesty and sincerity to her writing that seems like it would completely resonate with teen girls. Joey from Raleigh called and guaranteed that adolescent girls will definitely relate to Taylor Swift.
5: You don't know anything about young womanhood. You've never been through it. Go ask your teenage daughter if those songs
3: make her feel like somebody else knows exactly what she's feeling. Because I guarantee you she'll say yes.
0: I found Joey's impassioned defense of Taylor quite moving and would tend to agree with her assessment. Thanks for the podcast, and I'll be listening for the next artist that you trash. Maybe one man's trash is another man's, or young girl's, treasure. Thanks.
3: Hi, this is Heidi from Chicago. I'm just... I,
5: I was catching up on your podcast and I was listening to the Taylor Swift review responses. Speaking as a female and speaking as someone who's actually not too familiar with Taylor Swift, I,
3: I just... You don't understand, okay? You don't know what it's like to be an upper-middle-class white girl who has
0: no talent but only gets attention for a looks. You don't get me? Someone needs to speak that someone needs a voice and you don't get it,
3: okay? So, thank you for doing that Taylor Swift review because, well, wow. Thanks for the great show,
0: guys. Keep up the great work. This is Steve from uh, Longmont, Colorado. I just wanted to compliment you guys on your interview with Rivers Cuomo. Um, Way to stick to your guns with uh, your reviews of the album before, uh, the Red Album, um, and call them on the semi-obvious pandering, I know that he wanted to sort of hem and haul about it a little bit, but, you know, way to stick to your guns, and when it comes down to it, I just don't believe him. Or maybe he just sees it through a different lens, but I don't know how you can look at the, the uh, discography of Weezer and not see that they really, really changed their style and, and obviously tried to become more of an arena rock band. They were uh, focusing more on solos, and if you went to their shows, they had these huge light lightboards and, you know, these symbols for Weezer and um, just everything about them seems to shift towards that building stadium. So anyway, uh, great interview, uh, great show. Bye.